absolutely I can understand. You know, it reminds me when we, the Beatles, the four Beatles, the used to play those dark clubs in Hamburg. Remember that ball? Of course I do. I booked them. I'm the leader of the Beatles. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Today we prognosticators get prognosticating with some early Oscar predictions. But first, we make director Todd Phillips follow up to the smash hit and Golden Globe Best Picture winner, The Hangover, the new comedy starring Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis, due date. If I miss the birth of my child, I'm going to choke you out with your own scarf. Wrap that thing around your neck and choke you out. Seems a bit drastic. Holy moly, he's like I'm traveling with a child. Did you use the restroom? Good point. I need to take a pee-pee. Check this thing out. I can't believe I did that. Don't panic! Don't panic! Studios oftentimes throw a pair of A-list stars in front of the camera, shoot for 60 days, and slap it together and hope for the best. But sometimes that isn't always foolproof. I'm thinking about this year's Dinner for Schmucks, a movie that you didn't dislike so much, but it was a big summer release starring rightfully established comedy brands. Steve Carell, Paul Rudd, Jermaine Clement, and Galifianakis didn't really work out in my eyes, to me at least, but... That's in the past. Here with Due Date, you have two of the hottest A-list stars seemingly at the top of their games right now. Galifianakis, still fresh and popular off of The Hangover, success from last year, and Robert Downey Jr., a hit machine with the Iron Man franchise, Sherlock Holmes, and Tropic Thunder. They star here as Peter and Ethan, an odd couple of sorts who are forced to travel cross-country together to get Downey into the delivery room before his pregnant wife, played here by Michelle Monaghan, has their first child. Now, if you told me that these two guys, both of whom boast work that I'm proud to admire, if they were going to share screen time, match wits in a studio tentpole fall comedy that is essentially an ode to John Hughes' road movie masterpiece, Plans, Trains, and Automobiles, a movie that I adore, I would blindly sign up for it as a fan of the actors. But I made that mistake earlier this year, so Corey, you tell me, is this pairing under the direction of Phillips the knockout we saw on paper heading into it, or are the stars firing blanks? Well, I, I'm really glad you did bring up Dinner for Schmucks because this has a lot in common with that movie. I, I think this is better than that movie was. Um, since I think you called Dinner for Schmucks one of the worst movies of 2010, I hope you do too, at least. Uh, you know, so this isn't a conversation that you're completely decrying a movie that I kind of enjoyed again. But I only kind of enjoyed it to the extent that you know, it was fun and funny while I was watching it. You know, even now, this morning, I'm hard-pressed to recount the order in which things happened or why they happened or anything like that. But, I mean, like you said, this movie is all about taking these guys who everybody likes, at least right now, and slapping a movie together with them in it and watching them play off each other. And it, on that, it does kind of work because Downey and Galifianakis are both really fun in this movie. I agree, and it, just in terms of the blueprint, it, ha it has that in common with Dinner for Schmucks, and it has this in common as well, and this question that I had while I was watching the beginning of it, why do movies continue to abandon any shred of character development? I think that this movie just jumps right into its gags 
without letting us develop any sort of attachment to either of the characters. And I think that's crucial for this kind of movie where, obviously, this odd couple is going to have to learn to like each other, right? Because they're going to have to endure this, uh, these hardships on this road trip and these gags together, and they're going to have to learn to become friends. In fact, I think that we start out disliking both of these guys just through their actions, what we see on screen. And look, I know that there's nothing harder than, and in show business, than making a room full of people laugh one time, let alone for 90 minutes, or 95 minutes in this movie's case. But it really just doesn't it feel like Zach Galifianakis is this buffoon, sort of a, um, I don't know, a version of the character he played in Philip's last movie? Didn't it seem like this guy, who's a natural comedic talent, his stand-up is brilliant. This guy's funny. He's trying really, really hard here, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is Zach Galifianakis' fourth film of 2010, unless I'm forgetting one. He had a small supporting role in Youth and Revolt, which I thought was good, but he didn't really add too much to it. Um, he had a supporting role in It's Kind of a Funny Story, um, which he allows him to stretch a little bit and get into some dramatic territory. He's very good in that movie. And then the supporting role in Jennifer Schmucks, like you mentioned. And now here he is in sort of a co-lead with, with due date. Um, and to be honest, in this movie, he doesn't really modulate his persona nearly as much as in the other films that I just mentioned. He's just kind of doing his thing from his stand-up and from The Hangover, like you said. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying it's desperate, but it's certainly safer than what he tried to do in the other movies. This is, put the Zach Galifianakis that everybody became accustomed to from The Hangover in a movie with Robert Downey Jr. being mean to him. Right. And I don't, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that the process, the creative process, extended very much further than that. I agree. You just have Downey being mean to him. Uh, you just have him reacting to Downey's meanness. Either he's aloof or he is overly offended. He's become, he kind of has this crutch now where he, he's become this archetype of himself, this bearded, pudgy guy who puts his his exaggerated spin on certain lines, I guess, or old jokes. Like in this case, check yourself before you wreck yourself or... I have never, you know, something that an old woman would say, that kind of thing. And you have to make the choice to laugh or not to laugh, I think. And it's an easy choice for me in some cases. But you said he got to stretch a little bit, and it's kind of a funny story. This movie nearly lost me when they tried to let him stretch again a little too early, I would say, in the story. It was in the rest area bathroom when Todd Phillips really swings and misses while sort of dabbling in a little poignancy, or trying to at least, and he opted to let Galifianakis get dramatic in an attempt to add layers to this nitwit character. I think it falls flat, as does Downey's reaction to it, and the setup for it was an absolute contrived dud. Well, I don't think it falls flat because of Galifianakis. I think it falls flat, like you said, because of when it comes in the story, because to, to that point, we have not had anything in the movie that hints that it's going to that to that place of, of attempted poignancy. You know, Galifianakis, like I said, is really good, and it's kind of a funny story, and he has a lot of moments in that movie where he does legitimately make a case that he can handle these these uh, more dramatic roles. But Due Date, you know, it, it's just such a weird attempt. I, I mean, like you said, it is kind of contrived. It's, you know, 
again, in the creative process, they're like, well, we've got to have something to hang this movie on. We can't have just Galgamachus and Downey riffing the whole time. I think that's how studios feel, though. I think they, they think it doesn't really matter what the script says. It's good enough for us to shoot. And Zach Galifianakis and Robert Downey Jr. are such good improvisers, they'll make it funny. Peter, what brought you to Atlanta? Business or pleasure? Business. Business? What kind of business? Architecture. How'd you get into architecture? College. Anything else? Because I'm trying to... I'm sorry, Peter. We're going to be traveling for a few days, and it wouldn't hurt to get to know each other. Ethan, what brought you to Atlanta? Business or pleasure? My daddy died. I went to Atlanta to go to his funeral. Gee, I didn't know. I'm sorry. He's the one that kind of motivated me to get on the TV. I have a friend. He's, a, he's in that industry. Does he work on Two and a Half Men? No. He, oh, uh... man, that's too bad, because Two and a Half Men is the reason I wanted to become an actor. Right. Especially the second season. Why do you even have this? Oh, because this is my daddy. These are his ashes. Why are your father's ashes in a coffee can? Because he's dead, Peter. Well, I think they certainly do, at least. But then you've got this attempt at pathos, I guess, which is too early in the movie, though. It is too early in the movie. Later in the movie, you know, at the Grand Canyon... I enjoyed that scene. I thought it was good, and I thought Galifianakis was good. The music was nice. Phillips directed that scene well. Yes. And have you seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Yeah. Okay, well, the moment we get in the rest stop comes almost at the end of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Right. And we let this John Candy character, who Zach Galifianakis is sort of channeling in this movie, we really just sort of let him do his thing through the course of part of 90 minutes and let him just terrorize Steve Martin, but he's incredibly likable. And Zach Galifianakis kind of is here, but all you have to really uh, assume is that this guy's an idiot. He means well, so let him do his thing. But John Candy was a, a human being, obviously, with, with feelings, and that's a really corny thing to say, I know. But I think that his character was a little more humane and had a little more depth, and he was able to sort of earn that moment. Sure. at the end of that movie. And going into this, you know that this film is not shy about its similarities to the John Hughes movie. But about halfway through it, I felt a little sorry for its reluctance to be anything other than a tribute to it. There are some there are some moments in this movie where it appears to be going in a much, much darker direction than your typical studio comedy or even, you know, playing strings and automobiles, which is it's, it's not the darkest movie I've ever seen, I'll put it that way. It's, it's pretty fun. Um, you know, just Downey's sort of mythanthropic character here, uh, he's just so mean mm-hmm. and, and borderline unlikable. Mm-hmm. And for me, a lot of the best parts of the comedy come from that, come from Downey playing an atypically angry person who just hates everything that he comes across. <laughs> And so when the movie's engaging this and it's going in these darker territories, you know, I'm with it. I think that's great. I think that's funny. But they come back around and they make him likable again. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they make him, like, want to be friends with, with Galifianakis' character. And that's through some things Galifianakis does for the Downey character. Yeah. And I think that he takes a bit too quick of a 180. I think he does, too. Yeah. But, you know, it, but the movie is funniest for my money when... It is engaging this darker territory that that John Hughes probably wouldn't have, mm-hmm. um, such as some some insinuations around Jamie Foxx's character, right? Um, and, and all of that. It looks like it's going in a direction that 
I guess most studio comedy these days would go, but just the idea that it was heading that way was pretty satisfying to me, until it didn't, at which point I was like, oh, okay, this is, in fact, the movie that I thought it was. Yeah, and there's plenty to, uh, there's plenty about the Downey character that we can all identify with. We've all been there, we've all encountered these kinds of people and tried to avoid them, but when is he ever, in this movie, not irritable? He never really gets the stick out of his butt, so to speak, and we never really know why he's so wound up. We hear his wife say, you're always like this, you get, you get, you get like this and you blow up at people, but we never know why. Now, the Jamie Foxx subplot does nothing for the story, to me. I really don't think so. I think that it just kind of comes, it begins to set something up, but then it's just completely dismissed and abandoned um, right when you think that it might play a role in right. the story. I think it, along with several other scenes, are only these sort of trite diversions. These little comic vignettes. They got somebody famous to come in for a day. Yeah. And, and they were like, hey, just, just riff with them. And they only help up make the running time, right. I think. Like and the Danny McBride scene. The day, well, I, I kind of like that I scene. I mean, I like the scene yeah. as a scene, but it doesn't add anything to the movie. And it is really just Danny McBride. You know, he had a day off. And yeah. He's bounding down. Exactly. Come in. Yeah, exactly. Or the, the scene with Juliette Lewis as a pot dealer and her boyfriend here played by Phillips with this character. I think he's sort of reprised in a few yeah. of the movies, the mustached afro character. They just kind of have this little scene and talk about Zach Galifianakis' hairstyle for a while, and I'm just kind of waiting. I'd like to get back into the room with Downey and the kids, which was actually pretty funny. Um, outside of... Downey having to get back to his wife and the inevitable budding, uh, inevitable budding of this relationship, there's really not much to this movie. Right? No, there's not. Right. And that said, I honestly prefer this to The Hangover. I'm saying all these things about this movie, but I like it better than The Hangover. It's only a little less mean-spirited than that movie, and somehow the lead characters are more likable this time. I'd rather spend hours on end with these guys instead of Bradley Cooper and Ed Helms from The Hangover. Yeah, I really the would. The Hangover is so much funnier than this. I don't know that it is. I don't know that Mike Tyson jokes are that funny these days. I think they were back in the earlier part of his day when he was biting people's ears off. Yeah, but he didn't take that or leave that. That's, well, just, that's like one of the biggest gags in the movie, though. I think Zach Galifianakis is easily the best part of that movie. I think well, yeah. we can agree on that. Yeah, but, but I mean, the, the script of that movie is sharper. It's got a more compelling premise, this, this mystery premise of where their buddy is. Uh, and that movie moves, man. It moves with a purpose, like, this, this, this doesn't even... I mean, this just sort of ambles along. But I don't know why, because there is... I mean, the title says it all. Dude, they, it has a timeline. It has a goal that it needs to reach. Were you ever really, like, involved in the stakes, though? No, not there, there, were, there are no stakes. Yeah. There are no stakes. No, I mean, in spite of the self-imposed timeline, there's nothing. There are no, there's no, uh, there are no stakes to this movie. He even says in the movie, don't worry... We can be there by morning. Right. We can take this diversion he's here. Like, we've got we to get, get there by Thursday. Right. And then later in the movie, he's like, oh, wait, don't worry about it. We can get there on Friday morning. Yes, yeah, so we can introduce this subplot, or we can put ourselves in this corner where we go to the Mexican border and have this little action sequence, which oh, was, man, that you know, annoyed me. Yeah, it's just, you know, you have to have a car chase, I guess, I guess. in these kinds of movies. But look, this movie's competently shot. I think. I think with, it looks very nice. It's got some really gorgeous locations, yeah. especially when they're driving through the western part of the United States, especially the Arizona desert. When they make it to the Grand Canyon, it's gorgeous. And it's a really, like we said, the scene where they go to the Grand Canyon, a place where Zach Galifianakis, his character, wants to go 
throughout the movie. He mentions it earlier, and Downey says, no, we're not going there. But once they make it there, it's a really nice a nice moment. Yeah, I agree with you. I just never really believed in these characters or whatever they were after, that's all. And, and you know, like I said, I, I've been kind of hard on this movie and talking about it. It's fun. It's tolerable. It is. I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's got some good jokes. How about this? It's better than Dinner for Schmucks. It is better than Dinner for Schmucks. I would agree on that. Um, and you could do worse with your time. I mean, it's just... I don't know. I don't think this movie is going to inspire the rabid devotion that The Hangover has uh, amongst people in our age demographic. But well, uh, there it, was a, it is a fun time. Movie. There was a guy, when I was walking out of the theater, who, he was in front of me, and he saw one of his friends in the lobby, and his friend had this big thing of popcorn and a drink, and he saw him, and he says, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know anything. And the guy goes, it was good. Not incredible, but it was good. And I think that's what people are going to think. I think they're going to say, they're going to use that line, or they're going to say, nowhere near as good as The Hangover. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to denigrate Todd Phillips by any means. He's established himself as a successful comedy director, and a lot of his movies have been very, very funny. But I mean, The Hangover, to be fair, is his only astronomical success to this point. I mean, old school is popular, quotable, but I think people have kind of forgotten about that movie. And then in between that, he's had... To be honest, a, a string of pretty forgettable films like Starsky and Hutch and, and School, School for Scoundrels. Flops. Yeah. Well, Star, Starsky and Hutch was a it did modest it. hit, and it's not a bad movie either, but... Yeah, it was all right. But anyway, I wish he would get back to making documentaries. He made two really fantastic documentaries. You know, I've never seen either of them. He did one on the band Fish, yeah. you know, whom I'm a fan of, called Bittersweet Motel. Highly recommended. Very good. And he did one called uh, Frat House for HBO. Which is controversial. Right. And I think you can, a while back, you could find that on Google Video. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's still out there, maybe on YouTube or something like that. But it's really good. It's really strong. But Due Date is playing nationwide and at the Cobb Hollywood 16 in Tuscaloosa. Coming up, we tell you almost four months out, you can go ahead and book their advance tickets to the Kodak Theater for this year's Oscar ceremony. Stick around. This is Aspect Radio. We're in the big time now. We're freshmen. We're all the girls to be putting out. Your days of lying around one tongue all night are over. Welcome back to Aspect Radio. Time now for our top five 2010 Oscar shoe-ins. At this point, we're going to tell you without a trace of doubt, Corey, because we're good at this, what films and performances won't go unrecognized or will go unrecognized because I'm going to throw a few snubs in there this award season. We're not going to discriminate towards any category. It can be major or technical. So, Corey, start us off with your number five surefire Oscar nomination or snub. I just want to first preface this with uh, I I restricted myself to movies that I've seen. You know, there's a fair guess, I think, that The King's Speech, a movie that is unreleased, uh, thus far is going to clean up in a lot of categories, but since I haven't seen that movie, I cannot say without a shred of doubt that they will clean up. So, these are the movies that I've seen that I know will be Oscar-nominated. Starting with number five in the category of Best Original Score, Hans Zimmer for the film Inception. Uh, for my money, this is his strongest original score in a long, long time, probably since The Thin Red Line. I would say that this is his strongest original score ever as well. I think this is just above that. That film's a wonderful, wonderful original score. Um, and it's just it's one of those instantly iconic soundtracks uh, to an instantly iconic film, I think. I totally agree with you. I love that soundtrack. It's on my iPod. I jam it when I'm on the road commuting to my job. 
which is again, it's, it's unusual to jam a film score. It's jamming music, though. It, it is. is. It's really good driving music. He has really. He, I love the way he uses electric guitar in it. And somebody reminded me is who Johnny Marr of the Smiths. Really? Yep. I did not know that. I. It, it kind of think it's awesome. <laughs> right. Right. It adds that layer, and it kind of reminds me of anime soundtracks. I think yeah. you can look at Inception as like a live-action anime movie in a way, which I think is a really cool thought. Okay, getting, getting into my list before my number five, you said you're not going to include movies you haven't seen. I'm going to include one here. Okay. And I think that you can look at a movie's trailer, you can look at its release date, all of these little intangibles surrounding uh-huh. it, and you can kind of guess what's going to get ready. I think I know instantly what you're going to say. Maybe. Now, last year we had Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges. I knew that movie was coming out, but right when I saw that trailer, I thought to myself, there's this Oscar, he's going to win. It's the... You kind of had that feeling of it's this year's wrestler, but it seems like the cards are in place for Jeff Bridges to win his Oscar. And everybody likes him. He's got a likable role. It's going to happen. Now, whether or not everybody likes this guy, I'm not so sure after news in the past couple of years. I think that it's probably his time to get a nomination. And based on this trailer for David O. Russell's movie, The Fighter, Uh I think Christian Bale is going to land a nomination in the supporting actor category. It's not what I thought you were going to say. Really? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll say something along those lines later in the show, but that's the only thing on this list that I haven't seen yet. I, you know, I, um, I think you might be on to something there. It just looks like a very unusual role, not only for him, but just in general. He's, he looks gaunt again. He's, you know, put his body, he's put his body at risk for a role. He is using an accent, right? He's British playing this. Bostonian character, I guess, and he it just looks like a very gritty, showy role. Whether or not it's too showy, that could be a problem. We'll see. It could just come off as corny, like this movie's first trailer suggested. The second trailer is a vast improvement over the first one, and I actually want to see this movie now, but I do think Christian Bell finally gets a nomination. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. You're number four. My number four. Um, this is a lot more of a lock than its placement on my list indicates, uh, just based on Everything, I guess. This is uh, Toy Story 3 in the category of Best Animated Feature, which is a no-brainer. Um, I actually think this movie is going to get a Best Picture nomination as well, so of course it's going to be nominated in Best Animated Feature, barring just the most insane upset in history, which won't happen because this movie is so well-liked and it made so much money that you can expect this to show up in a lot more categories than just this. I guess its only real competition would be How to Train Your Dragon, unless there's something out there that might be a foreign film. What's the what's the Triple to Belleville guy, his new movie? It's called The Illusionist. Right. And it comes out around Christmas. You never know. I mean, I, I mean it'll, it'll probably show up in the category, but I don't think it'll pull the upset. Right. So but I hope it's good. I'm really looking forward to it. It's apparently based off of an unused Jacques Tati uh, screenplay. It sounds awesome. It has a it has a pedigree there for sure. But Toy Story three, it's a machine. It's unstoppable. Yeah, it's it's going to win deservedly, and I need to check out that Blu-ray. We'll get to that a little later on. Yeah. My number four in the editing category. Back to a movie we've mentioned. I think that Lee Smith for Inception and Kurt Baxter and Angus Wall for, for Social Network are going to get well deserved editing nominations, and I really hope it comes down to one of the two of those films winning that category. You know, um, I, I agree with you on both of those being locks, but when it comes down to it, Lee Smith's work in Inception is sort of like 
mind-blowing next-generation stuff. It's transcendent. It really is. It's Every time I saw the van yeah. falling off of the bridge, I thought, wow, this is some of the best editing I've ever seen. I mean, just the pacing in the last hour and a half of that movie is just phenomenal. I want to see that movie again. I, I did too, but, but that's not to denigrate the work from the, of the guys from the social network. Oh, that movie is the same way. The face smash sequence is incredible. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And there are just moments in the film when they're going back and forth between these depositions and what we're seeing in the past. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. So, you're number three. Um, my number three, I usually, another preface, I feel weird about declaring any actor or actress a lock at this point, because anything can happen. That being said, I think this person is as close to a lock as you're going to see in any of the acting categories, uh, and that's Annette Benning in The Kids Are All Right. Um, you know, whether or not she's going to win, finally, that remains to be seen. I don't, I don't, know, I don't see Hillary Swank pulling, you know, a third upset on her, but I really do think that she has her best chance in a long time uh, from this movie because she's she's phenomenal in the movie. She plays uh, one half of this couple, the other half being Julia and Moore, uh, who are sort of thrown into upheaval uh, upon the arrival of their children's uh, sperm donor, played by Mark Ruffalo. Um, and she plays this sort of dominating, uptight woman uh, with a lot of layers. It's a really special performance. It's a really special movie. And I think she'll finally, I mean, again, I don't want to say because there's probably some young ingenue waiting in the wings to come up and snatch that statue from her. Uh, you know, Natalie Portman, for example. People are saying this is going to be a pretty strong race this year. Yeah, it looks like it. But and yeah, she's, she's as close to a lock for nomination as I see. Well, that movie, it, its biggest obstacle is its release date, obviously. Yeah. Um, I doubt it's going to get forgotten because of how critically acclaimed it was and how her performance was singled out the way it was by critics. So I agree with you. I think she is going to get the nomination. I just really hope that Hillary Swank gets it. I haven't seen Conviction. I just want to see Swank bending three this year. You don't want you don't want that bending to sort of like find a... I want her to beat Hillary Swank. You want her to beat Hillary Swank. Okay. I thought like, you said you wanted Hillary Swank to beat Annette Benning. No, 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 I just want her to get the nomination. It's kind of like, you know, Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady. Peyton Manning could never beat Tom Brady, you know what I mean? And now I, the only way his Super Bowl or his trip to the Super Bowl would be legitim, legitimized would be if he beat Tom Brady. So Annette Benning's Tom Brady here is Hillary Swank. And so it's only good. she can only win the Oscar if she beats out Hillary, no. Hillary Swank in my eyes. No, if Hillary Swank gets another nomination and wins again, that would be three Oscars in three nominations, which would be just insane. Unfounded. Um, my number three, you made a predictions list not too long ago on Facebook. I believe you wrote a note, and yes. I read that, and included on that list in the Best Picture category, and we all have to remember that there are ten nominations now starting last year. They started again from what they did back in the old days. There are ten nominations, so anything can get nominated. I don't think Due Date's going to get nominated, but anything can happen, and when you look at critical acclaim in this movie, got a lot of critical acclaim based on the Rotten Tomatoes rating, which I think is in the low to mid-90s, which surprises me, and it made a little money, and it's still making a little money. But I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is a, a personal agenda of rage. My number three, The Town gets 
shut out of major contention, major categories. It's not getting anything, Corey. Well, I hope so, but here's why I think you're wrong. Not only because of the box office and not only because of how popular and critically acclaimed this movie is, it's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray December 17th <sighs> in, the, in the thick of things. That's a Friday release, too, December 17th. It will get all sorts of attention on itself for bucking that Tuesday release schedule, and it's in the thick of screener season and critical and critical award season. Well, I read your list, and I remember thinking, the town, what is this idiot talking about? He's better than this. You know that I don't like it either. Well, but I, and then I've seen other lists, and people are including the town. And I'm just wondering, why? Hey, man, I'm with you. I don't think it's a good movie at all. But it's, I think it's it's because people love it. And I'm, I'm, not gonna gonna say, I'm not going to say it's not a bad movie. I'm not going to say that because there's a reason people, honestly, I don't know why people love it as much as they do because I don't think there's much to love. There's enough to sort of, enough to pass it engages time. you, yeah. I guess. But anyway, I just, I don't know. I it just, I hope it doesn't happen. That's more of a hope than will happen. I'm in denial. You're number two, Corey. Uh, my number two, Wally Feister for his cinematography in Inception. You know, I hate to, to harp on Inception, but it's such a phenomenal movie technically uh, that um, it's pretty safe to say that a lot of these below-the-line collaborators are going to go to the Kodak Theater and probably win. Uh, you know, if it weren't for a certain other movie with certain beautiful cinematography by a certain cinematographer who has never won an Oscar inexplicably coming up, you know, on Christmas, that being True Grit with photography by Roger Deakins. So we know who you're pulling for, Corey. Um... I would say that this would be Wally Feister's year, and deservedly, but now I think it's kind of a, a two-way race with the, the, this uh, beautiful, beautiful movie, Inception, versus True Grit, which looks pretty exceptional from the trailer. Yeah, and there are just shots in the True Grit trailer that tell you this is Roger Jenkins' year, but Wally Feister is a beast behind the camera. He really is. Um, there can't be a better pairing, too, right now than Feister and Nolan. They do tremendous work together. And what won in 2006 to beat him in the prestige? Uh, Babel didn't win, did it? No, Pam's <laughs> Labyrinth. Was okay, that's right. Which is, okay, I'll give it that. But, but Pam's yeah. Labyrinth beat Children of Men in the prestige. Yeah, Children of Men seemed like the shoe-in there. Yeah. Uh, and I really thought it was going to win. And then there was one more. There was there was um, the prestige. The Black Dahlia. Ugh, never mind. But that's a good-looking movie. Okay. My number two is a downer, another snub, and I, I think this is going to happen, unfortunately. Leonardo DiCaprio gets screwed out of a nomination this year. does. Why not? After two brilliant performances, and I think that if he gets one, if he does, it's going to be for Shutter Island. And a lot of people would say that that's probably the better performance, but I disagree. I think that Inception is maybe his best performance. And I think time is going to tell us that, too, when we go back and watch it. And this guy puts it all. It just seems like an ordinary Leo role. Uh-huh. He's just kind of playing Leo in this situation. But I think it's a brilliant, emotional, powerhouse performance. It will, like you said, completely get overlooked. But it will. I mean, the Academy likes their, their big, spectacle movies. You know, with a bunch of technical nominations and no acting nominations, they like to segregate the two for some reason. They're your actors' movies and they're your spectacles. Uh, I think Inception very obviously falls into the spectacle category, though I would agree that we have at least two deserved acting contenders in that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Marion Cotillard. 
yard who deserves uh, a lot of consideration in the supporting actress category. Absolutely. And Corey, I don't know if our number ones here are going to be identical. I have a feeling they yeah. might be, but let's go with your number one. Um, for writing the best screenplay of the year, that's Aaron Sorkin for his uh, adapted screenplay for The Social Network. I'm sure that's what your number one It's my number one. And I think that not only will he get nominated, he's going to win. They've already engraved his name on the statue, barring some completely weird... What do you think is his biggest competition? Oh, um, I mean, if the True Grit script is any good, which I'm sure it will be, but I don't think they'll be in a hurry to reward the Coens again over Aaron Sorkin, who has never been here. Um... I can't think of anything. Toy Story 3. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. No. Mighty Mouse always already has an award. Yeah. Um, Winter's Bone, the script is great, but it's not in the the league of of, um, the social network. This is my number one as well. I think this is your biggest surefire lock of the season in terms of winning. I think both of us know that Colin Firth right now is obviously a lot to get nom- nominated for Best Actor. I don't know. I'm not going to say he's going to win right now. Uh-huh. There's still some time to see other movies, and I think that this is going to be a strong category as well. I think Deadline Hollywood actually did a post this week that emphasized how strong this category is going to be this year. But, look, Aaron Sorkin, it, you're right. I think that they are engraving it. He's got it. He's going to walk away with it. It's going to be one of the uh, most boring moments of the night because it's going to be a situation where we're saying, let's get it out of the way. Let's just make it the first time. will give a great speech. Absolutely. He's fantastic. And, look, this is well-deserved, too. It, it, it is. But my, one of my honorable mentions, of course, was the Colin Firth nomination, which is going to happen, and he is a frontrunner right now to win the award. I think James Franco is going to get nominated for 127 hours. Because it's going to be up to him, really. are really responding to that movie, too. It's going to be up to him whether that movie's good. I think Winner's Bone will land a screenplay nomination. It should. It really should. That screenplay is sharp. Did you have any other honorable mentions here? Uh, you know, again, I don't like naming actors, but um, from where I stand, Andrew Garfield's sitting pretty in the uh, supporting actor category for this social You think ahead of Justin Timberlake? Yeah. What about Jesse Eisenberg? Do you think he's going to get the score nomination? Man, I don't know. That best actor category is always so competitive. I hope he does. I hope he does, too. They discriminate towards young people sometimes, but you sort of have... I think that oftentimes there is one slot available for the young performance that year. Matt Damon scored it in 97. Ryan Gosling scored it for Half Nelson that year. So you never know. Yeah, you never know. Um, Also, in a category that is a little bit more... um, permissive of young performers. I really, I mean, this is, again, a hope, but Jennifer Lawrence had better get in Best Actress for Winter's Bone because I think she gives the best performance of the year so far. Um, and she, and then, you know, I just love that movie. And also David Fincher as Best Director for The Social Network. That's probably going to happen, and it should. Well, these smaller movies do get recognized, especially in the Best Actress category. They really do. If you look back at Well Rider or Maria Full of Grace. Uh, Frozen River. Frozen River, exactly. So I think that it it is on the fringes of lock territory, but we'll yeah. see. You never know. I mean, we're still three months out. None of the critics have announced their picks. You know, we're probably, what usually happens or what can sometimes happen is, uh, you know, the National Board of Review or a critic's circle can announce some winner that nobody had thought of before, and all of a sudden everybody runs with it. They're like, of course that person mm-hmm. for Best Supporting Actress. No, 
Why didn't we think of that? Yeah, that, she's absolutely a lock. And they'll run with this, and that person will run all the way to the Kodak. You never know. This is why I wish that they would push the Oscars up, like they've been talking about, right? Ahead of SAG or the Golden Globes, to where those movies, those award shows, are going to be influenced by the Oscars instead of the other way around. Because you just kind of get to that point where you know exactly what's going to win. The Oscars end up like a coronation rather than a legitimate award ceremony. And sometimes you do have your your upsets and surprises. I don't think anybody predicted, uh, for example, last year, Jeffrey Fletcher beating uh, Jason Reitman for... That was a pleasant moment for me. Yeah, for, for adapted screenplay for Precious over Up in the Air. Everybody sort of expected Up in the Air. Up in the Air was a surefire lock. It yeah. was a lock. So, yeah, there, so, was, there was a nice surprise. So you never know. You never know. Some, sometimes things will just go awry uh, based on the movie that they liked better, and they liked Precious a lot, you know, based on the nominations. Um... Before I forget, do you have any snubs that you want to throw out there anymore? Not yet. I I just kind of have to see the field a little bit more. My snubs are where I stand today, uh, uh, just in terms of Leo getting snubbed all out. And I think, I hope slash think the town gets snubbed, but I don't know. You well, might be onto something. Yeah, I've got um, possibly Robert Duvall for Get Low. Because um, I think people have forgotten about that movie a little bit. Yeah. Even and you know I don't like that movie at all. I really don't. I don't know. I don't see what people see in it. But he's good, and he's got that one big scene at the end of the movie that is good. Um, and you know he's Robert Duvall. Yes, yeah, so people won't have any problem getting him any more recognition. No, not at all. Because so, it's been a while since he's gotten some. But in this crowded uh, best actor race this year, I think that'd be kind of a shame. You know that he's not in for something that honestly he could do very easily. Uh, for a movie that doesn't really deserve it. Also, and this is going to make everybody sad, but it will be one of the biggest surprises ever if Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score for The Social Network makes it into the best original score category. That was that missed my cut. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. The Academy has never recognized rock musicians crossing over to do scores, no matter how good they are. Look at Nick Cave. Look at Mark Mothersbaugh. Uh, Johnny Dan, Greenwood. I mean, it took Danny Elfman decades to get in there. I think Johnny Greenwood was actually disqualified, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of the music from There Will Be Blood came from one of his pre-existing compositions. Mm-hmm. So he was disqualified on that technicality. Is that the case at all with the social network this year? To my knowledge, no. So he, those two would qualify. Yeah, as far as I know, that is a qualifying score that will ignored soundly. If they don't get nominated, it will be a snub. It will be an outright vicious snub. Yeah, I mean, what else is there? You know, this is kind of a weak year for scores. Uh, you've got Inception, which I mentioned, which is a great score. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon, which I think has a really good score. And then uh, Never Let Me Go, a movie that nobody's really seen. But I think that people who don't like that movie will have to admit that Rachel, Rachel Portman's score for that movie is very good. The um, Toy Story 3 score is, it's alright. It's but a Randy Newman You know, I wonder if that movie might be disqualified for having a score that's virtually identical to the previous True two that. Yeah. You, you, never know. you just never know with this, but the day that Trent Reznor gets legitimately nominated for an Oscar is going to be a surprising day indeed, and that's a shame, because he deserves it for this score, but it's not going to happen. One last one. I haven't seen the movie, obviously, but something tells me that Haley Steinfeld mm-hmm. from True Grit could be in the mix. I mean, obviously, it depends on the performance. But a lot of people just, are saying that, but nobody's seen that movie. Right. Yet, it so. just seems like a role fit for it. She, if, if she delivers, 
I think, I mean, if you, if you deliver in that role what has basically been set up for you by the Cohens, then I think you're going to land a nomination, but we'll see. Right. You never know. Um, well, we'll take one more short break, and we'll come back with this week's DVD fix. So stay tuned. This is Aspect Radio. You think you're too cool for school? I got a newsflash for you, Walter Cronkite. You aren't. Welcome back to Aspect Radio. Time now for DVD picks. Corey, what is new this week? Well, uh, Tuesday saw the release of Toy Story 3, which I mentioned on the last show. Uh, again, not much you can say about that that hasn't already been said, but it, I can say that it looks pretty tremendous on Blu-ray, um, as all Pixar movies tend to. Um, next week is a very big release week that only has like two movies that I think are really any good that I've seen anyway. Um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, one of my favorite movies of the year, finally hits uh, DVD and Blu-ray. And um, Lars von Trier's Antichrist hits DVD and Blu-ray, courtesy of the Criterion Collection. Uh, that one's a tough sit, so don't rush into that idly, I guess, because it's, uh, I mean, it goes places that, uh, let's say, American films will not go. Um, I would say that it probably looks pretty great on Blu-ray. That, yes. Yeah. I, that, that would be my guess. I, I'm looking forward to checking that out, though I don't know how eager I am to sit through the whole movie. I'm sure the chaos is beautiful yeah. on the big screen. Boy. Oh, man. I still haven't seen that all the way through, though. Oh. Are you having a moment, Corey? Yeah. yeah. Have you not gotten to the ending? I, I've heard about things that happen in The it. last 20 minutes, man. Okay. Well, let's... let's I. Steer clear. I mean, you've got to see it, but man, you don't want to. You, right. you, you, you cannot unsee it. Let's just put it that way. Okay. But it's um, it's a good movie, I guess. I mean, it's a Lars von Trier movie, sure, so it's, it's hard to answer that question definitively. Well, is that, is that it? Is That's it? really it. I mean, you know, you've got your grown-ups and your Charlie St. Cloud coming out next week. You didn't want to mention those? I mean, who's going to rush out? You know, who's going to hear this and be like, oh, man, grown-ups. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, they made like $160 million, but if we have any listeners who, you know, are willing to come on and defend grown-ups, you know, please do. I think Graham really liked to click, right? Yeah, so that, that, that was weird. It's not without precedent for, yeah. you know, somebody who <laughs> listens to the show to defend a, uh, an Adam Sandler movie like that. So, Graham, if you're a grown-ups fan... I'm willing to talk about it with you. Well, I, I did see that movie. Did you really? Yeah. Okay. Well, you wasted your time, I'm sure. I don't know. I've never seen it. I mean, I, I think I did, but Graham might not. <laughs> We're taking shots at Graham today. Wow. At home, I've got Billy Wilder's The Apartment, Best Picture winner from 1960. Never seen it. Oh, it's tremendous. Can't wait. I've got last year's Best Foreign Language film winner, The Secret in Their Eyes, which I'm really looking forward to. I like it. And rounding it out, we've mentioned it today. I've got Frozen River, which I missed. I love that movie. And I think Melissa Leo was gave the best performance in that best actress category that year. Really looking forward to Scott Pilgrim coming out this week. And my dad has really wanted to see that, too. He's been asking me, when does that come out? And I've had not answered. I didn't know. So I'm really excited about that. And speaking of new DVDs, Corey, back May 1st, we did a show on my wedding day. Right. And you gave me a gift. On that day, you gave me traffic on Blu-ray, which was a very nice gesture on your part. You had a birthday this past oh, week, man. and I've put something in the studio there with you. I have instructed you via paper not to open it until I tell you to, and now's the time you can open it. And if you have this, it's okay. 
you may already, because I know you're excited about this, but just tell me what you think. Man, you had a, you had a birthday, too. I, yeah, you're a worse person than I am. Oh, my God. Do you have that? No. You do now? I almost bought it yesterday. Oh, well, you've got it now, man. This, this, is, what it this is. is the Criterion Collection Blu-ray of Terrence Malick's 1998 film, The Thin Red Line. Oh, yeah. He, this was easily my most anticipated Criterion Blu-ray release of this year. This is tremendous. Yeah, enjoy it, man. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. That was my blues. Yeah, Traffic was one of my favorite movies, so I figured I'd return the favor. Oh, man, this is just, ah. Yeah. Well, we know that you're doing so much today. Yeah, well, this is, this is absolutely what I'm doing. <laughs> I really thought about, like, keeping Matt and getting you something else. You know, I, I, you know, I saw Glee Season 1 was there on Blu-ray. I, have that. That, uh, I bet you do. Uh, but, no, I thought, you know. I seriously do. Not on Blu-ray. I felt like, yeah. I was in a giving mood, Corey. This, is, this is just tremendous. I really appreciate this. No problem. I'm looking forward to this in a big way. Well, let's know next week how it is. I, I, will. I will. I will. Well, I'm going to let Corey just kind of look over the, the disc there for a minute. Opening nationwide in Tuscaloosa at the top Hollywood 16. Corey, I want you to remember this, okay? <laughs> this week, Due Date, which we reviewed today, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis. Megamind, which we did not see, have not seen yet. The new DreamWorks animated film starring Will Ferrell, Brad Pitt, and Tina Fey. I think that's all that new, that, that was new. Yeah, there's, a, there's a Tyler Perry movie. Oh, God, right. I'm so sorry. Yeah, the Tyler Perry movie is called For Colored Girls. Right which is based on the 1970s play of the same name. He didn't write this. He adapted it. This is interesting. I might actually go see this one because I've read reviews that say, this is one of the best movies of the year. Manola Dargis really liked it from the New York Times. A lot of people who are legitimate like it. And then I've read reviews that say, this is one of the worst movies of the year. Roger Ebert hated it. Yeah, but he gave, uh, what, four stars this week. He gave something four stars that was just ridiculous. Did he? What am I, what am I forgetting? I don't know. Look it up right now. But I found it interesting that for Color Girls, the, the poster, which is a cool poster, but it just kind of takes a, a page out of the Star Trek teaser poster book. Did you notice that? Yeah. Kind of a cool yeah. thing. Okay, he didn't hate it. He gave it two and a half stars. Was there something he gave four stars? Not this week. Mm. I'm scrolling down. Maybe I, like, dreamed something that he gave four stars. Okay. You know, whatever it was probably would and for him. I know that Conviction is still playing in Birmingham at the Vestavia Rave. I'll probably try to see that this week. And Morning Glory, the new Roger Mitchell film starring Rachel McAdams and uh, Harrison Ford, Diane Keaton, opens on Wednesday. <laughs> that trailer. <laughs> I was going to suggest we review that. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. If there's something else out there that we can see, please come to Tuscaloosa or Birmingham. Yeah, next week is like Skyline and Unstoppable, too. I'd rather see Unstoppable, man. Yeah. I really want to. Scott, who knows? Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll take a vote. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Well, you can uh, email any of your feedback to 90.7movies at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Aspect Radio or twitter.com slash Aspect Radio. You can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And you can now find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Aspect Radio. So head on over and become a fan by clicking the like button. Please do, and check us out on AL.com, the state's number one news and information service. Just scroll down the homepage to find us in the entertainment section or search Aspect Radio. Don't forget to visit our friend Matt Scalici's website, filmnerds.com. Many thanks to WVUA station manager Claire Brucker, our program director Chris Dodson, production director Cliff Kyle, and our friend Brandon Andrews 
for their support and contributions to the show. And until next week, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Dell. Oh. Oh. Why did you kiss my ear? Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Ah!